Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings in Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Asia's elderly population is on track to reach a billion by 2050, and there are few governments prepared to meet this challenge. It's a problem that will have wide social and economic consequences for the entire region. Here to discuss the trends and implications of an ageing Asia is Professor Thomas Klassen from the Department of Political Science at York University in Ontario, Canada. Thank you for joining me, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. So can we start by uh, getting a bit of a sense of the scale of the problem confronting Asia? When you, when you look at it, what is the ageing population going to do to the region? Well, there's a great wave of aging that's going to swoosh over all of Asia. It started in Japan, so it's going from east to west. Now it's reached Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and it's just starting in China. And it's unprecedented. And from China, it will go off into India and other countries. So it's the first time in the history of civilization that we've had such dramatic population aging. Mm, mm. How do you define an aging population? What are the what are the challenges associated with having that sort of thing? So for China, I think for argument's sake, it's going to be up to a billion people. Yes, it's not only the number of people, it's also the proportion of people. In uh, Japan, almost one third of people are over the age of 65. And in fact, in a few years will be. So just imagine a country where one third of everyone is 65 and over, and that's going to also happen in China, Mm. in part because people are living longer, which of course is a great accomplishment of uh, of modern times, and people are having fewer children. So combine those two, and in Asia, those two are happening much quicker than in any other parts of the world. So you've got implications from how families operate, how many schools you need, the kinds of jobs in an economy, who takes care of older people. Mm. It's just really one of the most dramatic trends of our time. And you end up with things like uh, diminishing resources, uh, a shrinking workforce, a lot of knock-on effects. So in Japan, for instance, everything that comes up as a policy change or debate has to have the aspect of an older population in mind, doesn't it? That's right. So it isn't just restricted to one part of the economy or one part of the society. But I think we also have to be careful to not say this is bad, that having more older people and people living longer and people having fewer children is bad and it's awful because Japan, even with such an old population, the average age of people in Japan is 47. Mm. It's still such a powerful economic country. It's still innovative. It's still wealthy. So it isn't like the countries are going to end up in chaos. That's not true. There are those that think that it might get to that point where there's going to need to be drastic intervention. It needs careful preparation, doesn't it, to deal with this sort of problem. Are you seeing that kind of preparation in Asia? Yes, the preparation happens in different ways. It's partly at the level of governments, but it's also partly in the level of families, of cities, of communities. So they're all adjusting. And in fact, 
one of the amazing things is how well this adjustment has progressed, that we don't see intergenerational warfare mm. of people saying, well, the government is only taking care of the old people. It's not taking care of the school-aged children anymore. So yes, it does take preparation. And it also takes being aware that it is happening. And even in Australia, 50 years ago, the average age of everyone in Australia was 28. Mm. Today, the average age is 38. So it's an aging population in Australia, but it's happened gradually. In Asia, it isn't happening so gradually. It's happening much quicker. Mm-hmm. And how is uh, Asia's situation compared, say, to uh, North America or, say, to Europe? Is Asia doing better when coping with the population? Have they got more of a problem? How does it weigh up? There's a bigger problem in Asia because European countries will Western countries, Australia, they became rich before they became old. Mm-hmm. Asian yeah. countries are going to grow old before they become rich. So in the West, we've got strong social services, pension plans, public uh, health care. In Asia, with the exception of Japan and, well, with only the exception of, of Japan, you don't have that strong welfare state, so more of the burden falls on families and especially on women. Mm. Just a bit of a question on that family dynamic then. I suppose the default is a small number of middle-aged people looking after grandparents above them, I suppose, if they're a married couple, as well as the children, a three-generation family group relying on each other at that point. Is that about right? Yes, well, there is that situation where as families have children later in life, they're going to have fewer children. Mm. Their own parents will be older. So there's more pressure. It's a sandwich generation that's got to take care of their own children and then of their own parents. I mean, fortunately, again, most older people are still active. Mm -hmm. They're not in hospital beds. They're still participating, perhaps employed, perhaps doing volunteer work, and obviously taking care of their grandchildren, helping out in other ways. So that that problem of older people becomes big when the older people are into their 80s or so. They become more fragile, more dependent. At that point, that's when the real crunch occurs. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious as to how you think that that plays out in China, and not that I'm advocating it, but the one-child policy must have had a substantial effect on the population and as a result on these dynamics. Well, the one-child policy always comes up in these kinds of talks because it was a kind of draconian social experiment of telling people, you know, what they can't and can't do in the bedroom and, you know, how many children they're able to have. But strangely enough, I would argue that it didn't matter. If you look at other countries where there wasn't a state-enforced one-child policy like Taiwan, like Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, Japan, all those countries have birth rates very similar to China. So what happened in China was, yes, partly because of the one-child policy in, in the West, 
we like to think, you know, that that was an uncalled for intervention in the lives of individuals. But I think the same thing happened in other countries. See, people have fewer children when they move from the country to the city, which is what's happening in China. And people have fewer children when they start to get richer. So when you're in the country as a farmer, you want a lot of children because they're going to help you. They're going to take care of you. Once you move to the city as an office worker, as a factory worker, you don't need children in old age in the same way. And you certainly don't want so many of them in your house because you're living in an apartment that mm. that has only two rooms, but you do want to have one or two children who you're going to invest all your money in, hope they become Harvard graduates, become entrepreneurs, and then they take care of you. So that trend towards smaller families was happening before the one-child policy is still happening. Has the one-child policy been effective? For sure. Was it really required to make the same outcome? I'm not sure. Okay. From your perspective, uh, and we'll take Japan out of this equation, I suppose, which countries are doing things right in caring for their elderly or being prepared for this kind of challenge? Well, well, that's a tough question, isn't it? Well, okay. Uh, you, look, it right? you've, you've studied Korea a lot. Right. You've written a lot about Korea. How's Korea going? Well, Korea's a good example because aging is happening quicker there than in any other country in the world. It's not doing a great job. It's kind of taking the easy road, which is to say taking care of older people is really the family's responsibility. It's not the government. You know, government can help a little bit, but, you know, it really should be the family. But that, to me, is not the best way because you've got to have a partnership. Mm. It's got to be family, community, and government, and religious organizations. So too many Asian countries are taking this, well, throw it back to the family. They'll yeah. take care of the older people. Yeah. And from your perspective, what are countries that are doing this right that other countries should be looking to? Well, some countries like Singapore, which is obviously it's small and it's wealthy. It's got a greater emphasis on saying taking care or adapting to an aging population takes everyone. It isn't just the family. It isn't just the government. It's employers who've got to realize, you know, you can't fire people when they turn a certain age, but you've got to find perhaps other jobs, encourage part-time employment. So I think Singapore is an example of trying to get everybody involved. Mm. And I know that uh, a few countries are struggling with the associated effects of this. So Japan has a, maybe a bit of a problem with the diminished workforce and a way to get around that or to try and counteract that effect is to encourage overseas workers to come into Japan and to encourage women to get back into the workforce or you know join it or rejoin it after childbirth. Can you tell me about those aspects and, and what they bring to a, a country like this? Yes. Well, as population ages, you've got to think of workers in a different way. It might not be someone between the ages of 22 and 58. You've got to 
sort of make sure that older people can still be in the workforce, maybe not full time. I mean, so many people I speak to who are older would love to work part time, mm. have more free time if they have money, but not quit or be forced into retirement. Certainly, many women would like to work at least part time, if not full time, but they can't because they're taking care of older people or children. So trying to, I think, create more flexibility in the labor force so that we're not looking only at all good jobs being full-time, full-year jobs, but you can have a good full-time job that you only go to three days per week. About immigration, well, for Australia, for Canada, for the U.S., that's always been the easy route. Lots of open space, lots of opportunities, small populations. In Japan, that won't work. It's a highly crowded place. It's a very homogeneous society. If you don't speak Japanese, you know, you can't do well. So I think Japan is going the other way. It's automating more. It's trying to encourage women to stay at work more. But the problem is women are also forced to stay at home and care for children and parents or grandparents. So it's not easy. And this is why you need the government's assistance. It can't just all rely on the family if they want it to work, if they want the economy to be strong. That's right. Yeah. And so governments you know, will have to provide see, more childcare so that women after giving birth can go back to work or provide you know, health care for older people so that families aren't the only support. Mm. So for a researcher like you, living and working in Canada, and I know that this sounds clinical, but has Asia become kind of like the canary in the coal mine for aging? I know that the Western world is going to deal with the population problems like this differently, and they've got more money to approach it with, perhaps. But do you look at Asia that way? Yes, Asia is at the forefront of a trend that's going to, as I said, swoop over Asia from east to west and then go into South America and and ultimately Africa. And you're right, it is different in Asia than, say, in the West. But there are important lessons that can be learned from Asia. For example, in the West, there's this big trend that's been happening in the past 20 years of trying to not put older people in institutions, to not put them into nursing care or into long-term care homes or hospitals. But that's what's been going on in Asia as well. And I would argue Asia has been more successful at keeping older people in their own homes, in their own families. We in the West, we can learn from Asia. But is that a a financial solution as well? We've got the luxury of taking that option, whereas in Asia, that's not so much an option? Yes. Well, that's Mm. certainly part of the truth that, you know, in the West, like in Canada, I'm sure in Australia, if there are a lot of older people in a particular city and they need care, then the government in some way will support the construction of a nursing home and they'll be housed and doctors and nurses will be hired. And that's the solution that in the past was 
thought to be best, and the money was available. Over time, we've realized, well, putting older people into that sort of care, unless it's really needed, mm. is a bad idea. Keep them at home. So I'll tell you, in Canada, I have my mom. She's 93. She lives on her own. But that's only possible because the state provides services for her, but it's a lot cheaper than putting her into some 24-hour facility. So I think there are low-cost solutions in Asia mm. that we can transfer to the West. There's also the, I suppose, the optimistic approach of uh, everybody can benefit from a closer family. Well, thank you very much for your time today. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from Latrobe Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Please leave a review. They are very appreciated. You can follow Latrobe Asia on Twitter. We are at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.